everyone, welcome to episode 80 of the Ubuntu Security Podcast. I'm Alex Murray. So this week, we've got a great interview that was done by Sid Faber and Kyle Fazari of the Ubuntu Robotics team. They had a chat with VJ Savapelli from CERT about the recent Ripple 20 vulnerabilities announcement, uh, and that goes into a lot of good detail there. So make sure you stick around for that, and it won't be too far away because we've only got uh, a few to go over in terms of security updates for the week. So let's just dive straight into that. Uh, first up, we had an update for NSS. This was released for our extended security maintenance releases. Uh, that's 12.04 and 14.04 uh, extended security maintenance. I talked about this actually back in episode 79 last week. Uh, there was a timing side channel attack that was possible during DSA key generation in NSS. So that has been fixed for uh, those releases as well. Next up was an update for Bind. Uh, these are two CVEs that just affected the most recent uh, long-term support release, which is 20.04 long-term support. Uh, both of these were denial of service issues uh, resulting from the ability to be able to crash Bind in certain scenarios. Uh, in the first one, an authoritative name server which provided entries that contained asterisks could uh, and could change entries could then cause Bind to crash. Uh, and also an attacker who could send crafted zone data uh, to cause a zone transfer could trigger an assertion failure basically due to the amount of uh, zone data that was sent and to cause a crash as well. Uh, so both of these kind of, uh, you know, not super high priority because bind will restart, but yeah, they've both been fixed for bind in Ubuntu 20.04 long-term support. Then we had an update for NFS utils. Uh, this affected uh, all of our long-term support releases. So Ubuntu 16.04, 18.04, and 20.04 long-term support, as well as the interim release Ubuntu 19.10. Uh, in this case, it was one actually that was found originally in uh, OpenSUSE that was then, uh, this vulnerability was then also found in other packages and it related a bit more to, due to how uh, the packaging for NFS utils or in particular um, using the StatD user. So uh, this is Farlib NFS directory that's writable by the StatD user. And this is done because you know it needs to um, manipulate certain things there. Uh, but there are also some files in there that are owned and readable by root, uh, which then can actually be modified by the StatD user directly. Uh, and these contain things like uh, the RM tab file and other bits that are used by say Mountie that then goes and makes you know changes to your file system. And so the idea is that if someone can compromise the StatD user, they can then go and change these files and essentially how to escalate their privileges to root uh, via the use of things like Mounty uh, using that file. Uh, so this was fixed by simply just not making the Varlib NFS directory uh, writable by StatD. Instead, there's a couple of little subdirectories under that that could be made uh, instead writable by that and uh, NFS utils and StatD will all uh, work correctly uh, with just that change. So yeah, pretty simple change, uh, but yeah, unlikely to be a, I guess, a high priority vulnerability because you have to be able to somehow compromise the StatD user in the first case, but yeah, that has been fixed for NFS utils in those releases. Then we had an update for MUT, the popular uh, command line mail reader, mail client. Uh, in this case, both of them were around handling of TLS connections, uh, both the vulnerabilities, should I say, were around t handling of TLS connections to IMAP servers. Uh, so if you are connecting your MUT to an IMAP server over TLS, uh, this applies to you. And this was for uh, all of our supported releases. So uh, Ubuntu uh, 12.04 ESM, 16.04, 18.04, and 20.04 long-term support, and 19.10. Uh, the first of these, uh, there could be a middle person attack since um, wouldn't properly uh, do authentication of the network connection. Uh, and the second one was that it would proceed to connect even if a user chose to reject the connection due to seeing an expired certificate warning. Uh, so yeah, they have both been fixed for MUT. Uh, 
then we had an update for curl. So two CVEs again um, that were for uh, Ubuntu releases 12.04 and 14.04 extended security maintenance, 16.04, 18.04 and 20.04 uh, long-term support and Ubuntu 19.10. So the first of these, uh, curl could be tricked into overriding local files uh, when you're connecting to a malicious server and specifying the dash capital J command line argument in combination with the dash lowercase i uh, command line arguments. And so uh, the dash capital J argument is used to specify uh, that the local file names that are written to should be specified actually by the remote server. So that's not terribly surprising. However, normally uh, curl will check if a file already exists and if it does, it will refuse to override it. Uh, so that kind of stops them to serve, you know, overriding arbitrary files um, that already exist. But uh, when you specify this dash I, the lowercase I uh, argument, that would then miss that check. And so the server could still overwrite any arbitrary files as you were downloading. Uh, so that was fixed. And the second issue was there was the chance of a possible password leak uh, or a partial password leak, should I say, uh, and only if your password contained an at character uh, where uh, curl could be tricked into using this to do a hostname lookup so essentially it would append part of your password to the hostname and then try to look that up uh, when it get, got confused as to what the actual hostname was uh, so yeah that was only if your password contains an at though so if it doesn't you are safe from that one but either way curl has been fixed so even if it does you are safe as well assuming you've applied that update and that's it for this week in security updates so as I said at the start of this week's episode, uh, we've got a great interview this week. Uh, this was done by uh, Sid Faber and Carl Fazari from the robotics team. Uh, they're part of uh, sort of a subgroup of the security team here uh, at, uh, at Ubuntu and at Canonical. And they interviewed Vijay Savapalli from CERT. Uh, and uh, Vijay was talking about the recently announced Ripple 20 vulnerabilities that involved a bunch of IoT uh, or a bunch of network stacks that were designed for IoT. Hi, my name's Sid Faber. Uh, I work on security in the robotics team. It's canonical. Security's part, uh, our robotics is part of the security team. Uh, so we work real closely with Joe uh, and Alex. Uh, and also with me today is Kyle, uh, the lead engineer on the robotics team. Hey, Sid, thanks for having me. Uh, so also a special guest today is uh, Vijay Sarvapali from CERT here to talk about the Ripple 20 series of vols uh, that affect embedded systems. So welcome, Vijay. Thanks for joining us. So glad to be here. So Vijay, first of all, a uh, quick question for you. Uh, you're from the CERT Coordination Center, not from US CERT. Uh, and in fact, when I take a look at the vol notice, I notice it's posted under a US CERT URL, but it's labeled as ICS CERT. And then I see references to CISA. Can you straighten me out on how all these things work together and how you fit in this whole organization? Uh, I'll try to. I by the time we finish this meeting, it might have changed already. But I'll try to tell you what what I know. In this, what November, December 2018, President Trump basically um, reorganized this whole NPPD program, which used to be the big program, and the DHS to do all the cybersecurity stuff. So he set up this two key terms in the agency called cybersecurity and infrastructure agency. So the focus was security and resilience for 
uh, both in cybersecurity and in kinetic world, and basically to do a lot of risk mitigation on the infrastructure side too. So this gave the the CISA organization today, which still owns the old uh, NCAC US CERT, all the organization under there to do more than what they used to do in, under NPPD, which is the National Protection Programs Directorate. So overall, the idea is to do a lot more than before and do very focused work on industry control system under an ICS CERT, do the broader work under US CERT and continue to sponsor us, the CERT CC from Software Engineering Institute to do the voluntary coordination with the public vendors and security researchers. So hopefully okay. some picture. Yeah, yeah, so it's a bit complex, but it sounds like uh, basically you work um, work a lot with the government agencies, but you're not government, you're actually part of CMU. No. Uh, over there. Yep. So, so with that in mind, how did you first find out about the Ripple 20 vulnerabilities? What can you say about them? Yeah, so the first conversation happened somewhere in the very first week of March. We just uh, discovered this uh, idea. There's a number of um, embedded devices impacted with the vulnerability. Was this different vulnerability which we reported as IP and IP vulnerability? Under that, we came across a lot of these vendors seem to have some common network stack that behaved very similar way. It was just accepting a default tunneling protocol. And that, that's the time I started talking to Art, who's my supervisor, about uh, do you know anything else that's going on? So he connected me and said, yes, 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 there's a company called Trek, which has been building this TCP IP stack we want to try to find out if this is connected. We'll start with the assumption what they found out in there uh, through a security researcher is not related. If it is related, we'll figure it out later. So that's when I first heard about it. And we had a meeting right away, March second week maybe, with the CTO of uh, Track and uh, their VP, um, who really gave a good briefing on their product, what they're doing, and how they came across this vulnerability. And they were, this thing was completely new to them, the, the whole cybersecurity world of internet and coordination, all this was just- so if, if, if this was new to them, what, what is their, what's their core line of business? I mean, what do they target? Do they just target embedded systems? Yeah, so they, their embedded software is all they provide specifically networking software, so you can compile it and put it into really high performance, small devices. It, it's just a complete TCP IP stack. That so so I can understand the need for, you know, a custom stack that's not, you know, on something embedded, it's not running a full operating system. Uh, yeah. But it was kind of interesting when I was looking at the vulnerability, dug a bit. I saw some big names in there, some things like, uh, in particular, the thing that struck me was IBM, HP servers, maybe a little bit of uh, Cisco stuff. How does that fit into the picture? Yeah, so um, the target they started in the 1990s was to basically uh, target a lot of instrumentation type vendors to provide them with uh, networking capability. But as the internet started growing, it just got more and more popular to use IP for everything. And slowly things got getting consumed into all different types of uh, small embedded systems, small OS, 
say, the BIOS OS that has networking today in it. Intel is very interested in that. Dell, HP, and all those people are into a very small OS that will do minimum IP stack and will do something to be able to connect over the network and all these uh, lights out type of operation that HP ILO does. And all those people can take advantage of something like uh, Trex, uh, very optimized IP stack. You know? And similarly, many other industries, medical, switching, FPGA, all these people needed something like this. Uh, so so that sounds like a pretty broad industry. Is that something that, that Trex dominates or are there a number of players? Is this something where we can expect to see a lot more of this happening or is this, uh, are we pretty well covered just by keeping you know, this one volt? <laughs> it's, well, it's a lot more than we know, honestly. Uh, this industry has evolved. We heard about the Wind River IPNet, which is a very similar idea of a very optimized IP stack that ended up in a lot of operating systems, a lot of different very embedded systems, including very popular operating systems like VxWorks, all of them included this IP stack, highly optimized. I believe there are more vendors. It's going to take us time to get to these vendors. Today, there's no way to really know which vendor actually has used which vendor's IP stack behind the scenes. It's just not transparent. If you get, say, a simple thing like a, a automated light switch or uh, one of those uh, you know, home power connections, the IP stack and there could be anything. And it's very attractive now. You have very tiny Linux operating systems available, but most of them at the beginning used a lot of the custom IP stacks. So I believe there's a lot more vendors than, than these guys out there. There's, there's many of them, many boutique little places that build this and sold it and got embedded in some form and ended up with some big vendors, some small vendors, all over this place actually, all different, <laughs> all different combinations between what uh, you, you consume and you can customize and you can build on it. So all these options keeps making this more and more complicated. Well, so it's a little, if I may, it, yeah. it's a little different than, uh, you know, an open source project. Like, for example, I, I read a blog post you wrote recently about uh, PPP, where you were yeah. able to use the, the GitHub security lab to actually find people who had forked it and were using it. You can't yeah. really use that type of process here, right? So what does, what does this look like? to you? Yeah, this is very, we have a very flaky process for this right now, honestly. There's no software build up materials, there's no expectation. I mean, even if you get a kernel of R today, it tells you what all is in there. Sometimes it tells you the state it came from as well, within the US or overseas. Uh, there's nothing like that for software today. You could grab things that are both uh, IP protected, open source, and partially IP, all those type of things together and put your own product together. And there's, there's no way to know. And the vendors, as they evolve, they consume and make this product into what they want it to be. It's very different from open source project. The transparency is definitely much more, uh, much less because of the intellectual property they claim on a piece of code um, that makes it very difficult to find out who consumed it, who modified it, what all was done to it, all that is not clear. 
Although at the same time, I, I suppose being a commercial product, they actually have a list of their customers. And so th do they typically reach out to all of their customers to try and, you know, the, is that the way the process would generally go in that situation? Yeah, yeah absolutely. That was, the, that was the way it started for sure. And uh, Trek uh, before long was, was scrambling because they saw many of the, uh, I mean, they were, in before 2001, so they have 1990 customers who basically either went completely belly up or consumed by some other big vendor and never heard back from them. These oh, products yeah, interesting. for a long time, and they had no idea of it. We have at least five vendors who basically are completely closed companies, but the product is still out there. They were some of them even in, in uh, uh, electric power grid product that actually from a vendor that's been gone and they're getting support from somebody else as a systems integrator to maintain it, but the product vendor is no longer there. So there's lots of, a uh, lot more complications because the life of this company and the many different changes that have happened, they actually have lost contact with more than 50% of the customer over this time. Uh, that's incredible. The outreach after that, even the customers they reached, uh, they had a strong relationship with purchasing and sales. They, some of these big companies, the ship is too big. Nobody knows who's on the second level, right? So we, the communication never got to the technical till we reached some of them. Um, like a very simple example, Aruba and HPE are huge companies now. Aruba is part of HPE Enterprise. Both of them, after we reached, they were able to close some gaps where there was already communication going on from the other side to the management chain, which took much longer to reach the technical people. You know? So that's where our, our role was uh, helpful for track in some form to really reach more vendors and the right people as well. So yeah. that's, that, you're, you're scaring me, Vijay. So, um, <laughs> so let me, let me actually throw this out to both Kyle and Vijay. Um, so, you know, if I'm, if I'm, managing security, work and security in an enterprise, what do I care about specific to this vulnerability? Kyle, where, with your experience in robotics, you've probably run across embedded systems from time to time. I mean, where am I gonna be surprised by finding them? And VJ, like how bad is this? Especially if I don't know if my embedded systems are vulnerable. That's really what it comes down to from my perspective. I I don't know if the, the hardware I'm using uses this stack, you know? <laughs> That's not a decision I made. Yeah, that, the attempt here is to really try to change that, right? We, we, we've been evolving our vulnerability process the whole time. Some of the things we try to do now in parallel is to request the researchers to give us POCs and fingerprinting, all those type of tools. So we we bring a plain field because the attackers already picked this up very quickly. For the network defenders, all the defenders of any kind, they have no idea what they have, like yourself. You know? So we're trying to do that. Uh, and we also have an effort going on with NTIA to do software build up materials. Long term, we really want people to be able to provide some amount of bill of materials that basically gives you an idea of what is in their, in their stack so we can actually collaborate and reach them in a timely fashion instead of trying to scramble like we're doing this time. 
So all those efforts are in progress. Right now, what we've done is we did the very typical blast email we send out to everybody. The first stage we try to do is, have you heard of track? Do you think you use track? Do you have anything with track? So that was the first email that went out for which we get less than 5% response saying, you know, what is track or we don't know anything about this. Uh, and after we sent out a set of vulnerabilities and some more uh, clarification of what is going on, we got a little bit better response. So this went through many phases from March to now to try to reach a lot of vendors. Uh, and the security researcher had started this process somewhere in, in uh, December, November, December of 2019. So he was on a deadline at June 16 to try to get this out into a publication and go to Black Hat conference afterwards. So we had scrambling trying to send two, three emails to a number of different vendors to reach them and to understand if they heard of track and they consumed track. Um, track has been very cooperative. They gave us a big list of vendors whom they lost contact with. Um, they gave us a list of vendors, overseas vendors, who actually forked their IP stack and got some licensing to be able to do that. So we reached out to them through local national search. So all that was the background work that we had to do to reach a lot of different uh, people. So this is this is really a fascinating story, and I think uh, probably my biggest takeaway is I didn't realize how immature. I mean, we've seen the stories about how immature embedded systems and security is in that space, but I think this this just kind of points out that we've got still got a ways to go here. Um, so uh, let me actually shift, we're just about out of time. I want to shift to a completely different question for you, VJ. Um, yes. So I, I think you're one of the few, part of a few, one of the few organizations that do this widespread vulnerability coordination effort when there's a vol that's like a systemic thing across multiple products. Do you have a favorite story uh, on, on something that's happened or you know an interesting anecdote in that, what's that line of work like? Yeah, so uh, I'll take one from this very track coordination that I think you'll find very interesting. It comes back to the thing you raised about the embedded system. Um, so track, uh, I said the story from track telling us they actually had in long time ago given the same uh, networking software to a company back in uh, in Japan and. Over the years, they've changed over and then given it to a number of different printing companies, printer vendors, as an embedded OS, you know. And we got first communication in Japanese telling us, we want to know more about this vulnerability. Okay, we immediately engaged JPSERT and tried to get to know what is going on. And Trek had already told them, and all the old uh, company partners who, who would talk to Trek are no longer there is from 2003 or four or so. So we got a very interesting uh, combination of embedded system, super high performance uh, network engineers who are really focused on getting a particular use case implemented. And they're trying to read the CVE that they've never read before and totally being confused about what it's trying to say. You know, they're used to use cases that's atomic and as a clear beginning and a clear finish, 
whereas security is just the opposite. You're sending all the fussing you can, sending all these network packets that is not expected to come through, according to them, and it comes into your IP stack. What do you do? That's aggressive. We kept getting this question back from them and say, I'm not supposed to get that. You know? I don't know what to do with that. <laughs> or, and all these questions like the, the security researcher had written down saying, uh, corrupting memory is possible. So he's saying, yes, I know it's possible, but I don't know what does it, what does it do? What does it corrupt? What happened in the memory? So these are things that they could not uh, really think through because they were used to a very typical um, use case in which they're very focused. This is the RFC. I'm going to fulfill this RFC. I'm going to answer this question this way. And everything else was the security guy's business now. You know? Everything outside the normal behavior was security guys. I send ICMP packet with unknown um, you know, unknown options on it, IP options on it. On top of it, I basically craft and break this packet into five packets and fragment and send it. You know, what do you do with it? It's just like, I don't do anything with that stuff. You're <laughs> expecting <laughs> a single ICP packet to tell us whether you're alive or dead or whatever, you know? So yeah. it was a very interesting um, communication as we went back and forth trying to tell them the memory corruption doesn't guarantee access to memory, but it gives access to something they're not supposed to give access to. I mean, it's basically thinking about this unexpected behavior that you need to be prepared to address, which is generally not the case for the embedded engineer. They don't think about stuff in that way. They don't think about exceptions in that way. You know? So it was a very, uh, very eye-opening thing as I thought about what was the, there's a lot of communication back gap also because of this, because security such as saying it's possible to do something and then claiming, I don't know if it's possible or not. That is actually true, but just the idea that you don't, uh, you know, you have an unexpected behavior in memory basically can lead to many strange things like either leaking data back or corrupting your memory, um, and many of these are very traditional, like like double freeze, which is basically you free the same memory location twice, and that could give you access or crash another process yeah. that you didn't expect to crash. You, know, you basically free somebody else's memory. Yeah. That, that's maybe longer than you expected, yeah. but it was very interesting. Yeah, but now it tells, it tells a fascinating story about communications, right? Communications make everything work or not work. So. Um, uh, really great. So, so I want to say thanks a lot for uh, taking the time to talk to us today, and also appreciate your work on coordinating a lot of these vulnerabilities. I'm sure uh, that's not always all that much fun. Yeah, thanks. It was, it was a pleasure talking to you. All right, talk to you later. Bye. Right, bye. And thanks again, Sid and Kyle, for doing the interview, and VJ for uh, for being on the podcast. It was really fantastic uh, listening to you guys. All right, and that's it for this week's episode. As usual, if you want to get in contact with the team, you can reach us at securityubuntu.com. You can also find us hanging out in the Ubuntu Harden channel on the Freenode IRC network. Uh, you can find us on, or you can hit us up on discourse.ubuntu.com. There's a security section there if you want to discuss anything. And finally, we are on Twitter uh, at Ubuntu underscore sec. So thanks everyone for listening again for another week. Uh, it's been great doing it all again for you. Uh, remember, until next time, keep calm because we've got your back and I'll speak to you soon. Bye.